You are listening to inspiring stories of ordinary people doing extraordinary stuff. Welcome to the Doolanders. Hit it! That's what I'm talking about. Wait! Okay now, from the beginning. Hit it, boys. Hey, Nick. Welcome to Season 2, Episode 2. Overall episode number 14. Otherwise known as episode 14. Thank you, Blake. How are you, mate? Yeah, I'm I'm well. Are you? Well, do I look unwell? (laughs) No, you you look look good. Who are we talking to today? Today we have Dave Harris. um, And look, he has packed a lot of doing into his life. A lot of doing. Where he started out in a school with... Nine kids, yeah. To where he is right now, into the world of esports, which I didn't even know was a thing before we did this episode. I can't like, believe you didn't know, know it was I, a I thing. It, I knew it was a thing, but I didn't know it was a real thing. Mate, it is a. It's, it's a, a really it's a, big thing. It's a massive thing. Um, quite an incredible um, story of how he's gone from um, a physiotherapist. Um, he got into elite sports. In that arena, he was the Sri Lankan cricket team physio. Yeah. Uh, in the English Premier League, he was looking after a few clubs there. Fulham, Bristol City. Like, these are like top, major, top level. major Premier League clubs that he was the physio at. But he just had this this burning desire inside him to contribute more in a, in a bigger, more impactful way and became an entrepreneur and... I don't even think at that stage when he first, the first time he left being a physio, he knew where he'd end up. And it's quite an incredible story. It is. And, and journey that he's, that he's embarked on. Yeah. Yeah. It, one of his startups, he actually created a, um, an insurance business for sports people. Yeah. He saw a, a gap in the market. The way that people were being insured for sports yeah. was not as efficient, I suppose, as it could have been done. Have you ever thought about that? Insurance. So, in, insurance for, for, for what? For, for some of your body parts. <laughs> some of your body parts. Did you know that Cristiano Ronaldo had his legs insured for $134 million whilst he was at Real Madrid? I reckon you need to insure your thighs. <laughs> you think so with all the riding that I'm doing? I do. I do. Now back to Dave, entrepreneur, Boston Consulting Group, the GM at the NRL and now all over esports. Um, what an incredible journey. Yeah, cracking journey. Here he is, the MD of Guinevere Capital and someone that sure knows how to read the play and when he does, he absolutely shapes what he does next. Blake, do you like stories of people doing? I love stories of people doing, Nick. Well, if you out there like stories of people doing and you want us to make more stories of people doing, then like this podcast, subscribe, and tell your mates, because the more people we have listening, the more episodes we can make, and that's better for everyone out there who's doing or wants to do. And as Arnold would say, do it. I thought he said I'll be back. <laughs> <laughs> Dave Harris, welcome to the Doolanders. Uh, thank you for joining us. How are you? I'm well, I'm well. Thanks for, thanks for having me on. Absolute pleasure. Nick, how are you? <laughs> oh, good, thanks, Blake. Thanks for uh, saying hello. That's all right. Anytime. 
Hey Dave, um, what do you do? I've got a company called Guinevere Capital, which is a, a, a bit of a bland name, but, but we invest and, and operate esports uh, franchises. So esports for, for people who don't know out there, there's a huge generation gap. Anyone sort of 25 or under, they'll be very au fait with it, but it's uh, competitive gaming basically. So um, my, my background's in traditional sports, but esports has the same, the same model around it. So we, we have teams who uh, compete in some of the the biggest uh, events in esports around the world, and yeah, we uh, we build a business around it. They have sponsors. We sell merchandise. We um, their media rights, etc. So it's a um, yeah, it's a fascinating space to be in. So give us a good idea of the scale of esports for those who don't know. It's easy to to sort of blow people away dropping the dropping the huge numbers, and we're, we're a little bit sort of reticent to do it these days because we're, we're trying to sort of really anchor people in, in into. Um, into numbers that they can sort of realistically um, sort of see day in day out, but but the, the big numbers are 100 million people watched the, the the League of Legends final. League of Legends being one of the the biggest esports in the world, um, and one of our teams um, at the time, the Direwolves, played in that in that World Championship, and and they had 52 million people watching watching them play a game, um, according to to esports charts. Um, we were playing a Chinese team, so. <laughs> to be honest, most of those eyeballs were, were right. Chinese eyeballs yeah. rather than tuning in to to, uh, to support us. But yeah, there's it's huge numbers, and like if you look at the, the scale of these events, so that they eclipse most um, uh, traditional sports when it comes to reach. They're sort of only second to, to events like the Super Bowl. Um, but yeah, when it comes to commercialisation, the, the the numbers haven't quite caught up yet. But there's still um, there's still big contracts out there. Sort of players are getting paid over a million dollars a year in, in contracts. There's a, a prize pool for one tournament that's over twenty-five million dollars. Um, and to buy some of these franchises, it's, it's ten, twenty, thirty million dollars at the moment. So um, the, the money's not up there with sort of the big North American sports, but it's um, it's on that trajectory. Yeah, well, it's uh, certainly come a long way since um, I was playing pong back in the day. Um, hey, Dave. Uh, We'd love you've, it's an amazing journey to to where you've got to today and to what you do today. So tell us a little about um, where your journey started. You you it, it was in a, a country town. That's right. I, I grew up in country Victoria. Um, it wasn't technically in Bonnie Doon. It was the, uh, the the town next door to Bonnie Doon, but I still say Bonnie Doon because it cracks up people who've seen the castle and uh, you get a, a stirring rendition of going to Bonnie Doon um, sung. But uh, yeah, we're a small country town. There's only nine people in my primary school. Um, and I lived in the country until the day I turned 18. I moved to Melbourne to to go to university and and live live on Queen's Co- campus at Queen's College. But up until then, I was very uh very isolated. Grew up on a farm, but again, it was a it was a a good upbringing, and uh, I guess gave me some of the uh, the motivation to get out there and and see the world, which uh, I, I did later. And uh, you, you had a couple of influences, although you you went to a school where there wasn't a lot of a lot of people, but you had a, a, a couple of influences through your, um, perhaps through your, your younger days that shaped your interest in sport? Yeah, my, my PE teacher at, at high school, uh, Mr. Nadge, uh, just, just thinking back on it, is probably one of the, one of the big influences. Um, I, I, was, I was reasonable at sport. I, I never got quite to the top level at anything professionally, but I sort of got to a few state finals here and there, and he, he was really supportive of, um, of my training and, and getting getting me connected with coaches and, and various people. And, and I guess academically, uh, looking back on it, he helped shape, um, shape a lot of, I guess, my, my approaches to, to, um, to, to things in general, being very outcome-focused as opposed to process-focused. Um, 
uh, I think I tell people that after, the year after I, I left, the highest male mark was 53%. But we were lucky in that year level I was there. There were there were there were a few of us who actually had a had a bit of um, academic focus, and, and, and yeah, he sort of almost encouraged us not to focus on the the, the pass fail things, the things that didn't matter. It, it was very much playing the game to to get the TR and get to where we wanted to go. Some of us wanted to get a physiotherapy, etc., which had high high cutoff scores. And yeah, I, I think there's a lot of private schools out there that pride themselves on on, on sort of <laughs> driving marks, etc. And uh, sometimes the state system is um, yeah a little bit of. Uh, babysitting but yeah there were there's a group a small group of us and a, a great group of teachers including mr nadge which sort of um yeah helped that helped a few of us in that year level sort of take that step and and get the marks to get into the, the university courses and the and the professions we were we were really striving for yeah and like you said you weren't you you enjoyed sport you were pretty good at some of them uh you were telling me earlier like uh what's the what was the was it fourth in the world at row gaining is it row, what are you for the uninitiated what does that mean yeah, the key to, the key to getting a good world ranking is to pick a really obscure sport. <laughs> yeah. So yes, yeah, so I, I was um, yeah. So uh, in junior row gaining, we we were world ranked in the pairs. Um, luckily, the world championships were in Beechworth, which um, yeah, again, via selection, cut out a lot of the international uh, competition. But yeah, row gaining is like orienteering, but on a on a, a very large scale. So you, you run around for twenty four hours straight, um, finding checkpoints in the bush with a with a compass, etc. So yeah, I, I I still do a few few these days. It's it's great for getting in the outdoors. Definitely not as competitive as I used to used to be, but it's sort of a a, a combination between sort of navigation and and long distance cross country running. Yeah, I guess. and you you're a pretty good runner. You're still uh, you're still fleet of foot. I am. I, again, it's uh, unfortunately I'm the, the wrong side of forty. So the uh, it, it's quite hard. You remember yourself in your heyday in a lot of sports, and then when you are. Uh, get out there it's it's not quite the yeah. same but yeah for fitness and I, I i've dropped like many people well i think yeah one way or the other but during the covid period i've, I've definitely dropped a, a lot of weight i'm almost down to fighting weight just because just to get out of the house i'm going for for runs incredibly regularly at the moment so i've uh, i've got right back into it nice one how much have you dropped uh i've dropped about six kilograms so uh, for work I, i've been traveling a lot i've i've back and forth to london up until covid sort of every month or so so the Heathrow injection does does hit you as well as those uh, hotel buffets where uh, it just seems a waste not to take advantage of them. It, you, you feel like a tosser going into a, a full hotel buffet worth about twenty pounds and, and having a bowl of cereal. So I uh, I always partake in the hotel buffets, but it's been nice to have six months in Sydney where it's been a uh, yeah something a little bit more a little bit more straight down the line at home. Nice, good to hear. Um... Hey, you you were you said you were out of home, like you left the the country the day you t- or, or you lo- sorry you you turned up at uni on the day that you turned eighteen. Was that deliberate? Like were you just hell bent on getting out of there, or no complete coincidence right. that eighteen years <laughs> earlier I was born on February nineteenth, yeah. which was also the first day of O week. But um, yeah, uh, but yeah, I, I think it is that 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 was a life changing time for me. Obviously, I'd um. Yeah, been in a a very sort of a rural environment, and, and then got to Queens College and, and lived on campus, and we're, we're surrounded by people that were yeah, I, I guess in some ways a lot a lot more similar to myself. Um, and uh, yeah, it was great to have both the network living on campus down there, but but also in physiotherapy because it's uh, even though it's a reasonably high cutoff score to get into physio, it is a bit more down to earth, and there's a lot of sort of people a bit more focused on sport and um, socialising than necessarily the. Uh, the hard academic studies. So I, um, yeah, I managed to get through those four years of university. But again, it was very much a, 
a rounded lifestyle. There was a, a, a lot of socialising as well as a, a bit of study in there. And again, it comes back to the theory of, get, of getting what you need to get where you want to go. And to, for physiotherapy, at the end of the day, to get registered, you just need to pass. Um, it, it's quite funny looking back, and all the honour students never really got that, that stronger stronger career afterwards a lot of the time just because they, they didn't really have those interpersonal skills which were which were quite important in the, in the profession so um yeah it was, it was a great a great four years down at, down in melbourne through through university i really enjoyed and uh, particularly living on campus some of my best friends today my social network is a lot of them are from from queen's college um shout out to nick i haven't seen him for about 20 years but that's where i first <laughs> met him as well <laughs> <It's> <laughs> the power of social media <laughs> That's right, stalking. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> well, that's that's what the yeah, that's what the, the they call it. Exactly what they call it. Um, was it? Did you start something like a, a play by email game at some time around the the Queen's College time frame? That's right, and again, it shows how old I am, and and people in the industry really laugh when I start talking about play by email games, considering the uh, the, the technology in the games these days. But um, yeah, one of my friends from from school, Chris Horn. Uh, we uh we sort of both enjoyed enjoyed games in, in general, and I, I think growing up in country Victoria on a farm, there a lot of the time there weren't people around for me to socialise with. Uh, my nearest neighbours were sort of a, a, probably a couple of kilometres away, so um, yeah, I spent a lot of time gaming when I was on the farm growing up, and uh, yeah, we we got to university and uh, we discovered this play by email game, and sort of again the the internet hadn't really taken off too much there. You could either Run a phone line down and, and put, get your modem in and get the did it or you'd uh, you'd go into the go into the library and we started playing this play by email game Atlantis Two which was effectively just a text based game you type in your orders it would go and email them in it would go into a processor and once a week you'd get your your turn report back and um, we just had fun doing it and thought it would be um, it'd be cool to make our own and and so I I sort of designed a game um, Chris was a, a very good programmer he he. Um, he turned it into a, coded it up and made it all work. And yeah, over the years, we, I think we had about 10,000 players signed up and we made about 50 grand out of it. So these days that's not much, but back in the day, that was actually quite a bit of a, quite a bit of money, quite a bit of coins. So it was, um, yeah, it was a, that was probably my first startup. And uh, yeah, I've obviously done a few since, but um, again, it's, I think it's great to take something you're passionate about, do it just for fun. And then yeah, if you can make money out of it on top, then that's, uh, that's even better. Yeah, amazing. And at that time, so it was you, you know, you're, you're at Queens, you're starting to, to be a physio, you've created this game, you've made some good cash. What was the thought process around what am I going to do next from a career perspective? Yeah, I was still incredibly passionate about sport. Um, by that time, I'd well and truly acknowledged I was never going to make it as a professional athlete. So that the next best thing was to be a physio and uh, still get to hang around with them and go and tour, etc. So. So my focus was getting into sports medicine and um, and, and getting a role with a with a professional sports team. Um, so, yeah, I was uh, picked up a few roles in sort of almost volunteers with with North Melbourne in the AFL and Carlton National Soccer League. Um, but yeah, as I said, it's I'm always a believer if you just yeah opportunities will come up at some stage. And I was just very lucky. I was actually as a, a wyvern, which is alumni of Queens College. I went back down to watch a cricket match, and I was. Just sitting on the side of the field and chatted to one of the tutors who was at Queens, who's tutoring physio, and he'd just been offered a, a role with the um the, the Sri Lanka cricket team, but he couldn't do it because he was um finished off his PhD. And I said I just sort of put up my hand, and it's been a theme throughout my life. I've I put my hand up for things I'm horribly un- underqualified for, but if you don't ask, you don't get. So just asked for the contact details and um started putting myself forward for this role. Um, and there was yeah a, a lot of back and forward over the 
over the next few months was on again, off again or whatever. Then all of a sudden they said, uh, yeah, we, we need you. Can you be here in two weeks? So I just packed up my life in Australia, moved to Sri Lanka where I'd never been before. Very much a, a third world country with a civil war on the time with the Tamil Tigers kicking off. But um, yeah, it, it was the first big overseas adventure. And yeah, I, I didn't really get back to Australia for another 12 years after that. But it was a uh, yeah amazing opportunity. That's sort of where the the big roll through sports medicine and then on to sports business started, I That's guess. That's amazing. And how did they know that you were any good as a physio? Yeah, I, again, it's I, I, I had a few reasonable references, right. but at the end of the day, there it's sort of, there's a baseline of expertise and then it's actually just actually being able to fit into that team environment. And I was a reasonable sportsman and particularly being sports physio back in the day, you had to be a drag, back of all trade, jack of all trades. You, were, you spent more time hitting catches and, and wicket keeping and uh, do, doing rub downs and, and hauling kit around as you did um, actually trying to fix injuries. So um, yeah, I, I, I basically, they wanted someone to do a bit of the fitness work, etc. So I had a bit of, uh, I, I could talk the talk at least in that front. But yeah, as I said, my my entire career, it's uh, yeah, it's been a, a little bit of imposter syndrome early on, and then um, yeah, before you know it, you're overqualified. So it, it sort of uh, rolls from one job to the next. And I've always got the the belief if, if you're feeling comfortable in a role, then you're just being lazy. Really, you're not put, you're not stretching yourself. So um, yeah, I'm always up for for taking on a challenge. And yeah, luckily no one's died on my watch. We <laughs> but um, it's um, <laughs> it's uh, yeah, it, it was a great experience. And 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 Alex Conturi, who was working with the Sri Lankans at the time. He went on to the Australian team, but he was a, definitely a bit of a mentor while I was there. Um, and yeah, he, he, he took all the good tours like uh, like England and the Caribbean, and I ended up in Pakistan and <laughs> UAE and some of the, uh, the, the less salubrious tours. You, you would have uh, got to have met some amazing people and and being in those, you know, those sort of high-performance environments early on, is there anything that sort of, stands out around what you learnt that you could apply to your career um, later on in life or as you've moved through? Yeah, I, I, definitely. I, I think it is the mindset. I've worked with a lot of professional athletes and you, you, the impression you get from the media is, is always very different to the person person themselves. So I, I guess growing up, one of my my, my heroes was Steve Waugh and um, I, I thought Shane Warne was a bit of a douche, to be honest, but like you actually get to work with him and Steve like, is a great great guy but one of the gruffest blokes you'll you'll ever meet like I didn't have a lot to do with him but yeah it's a two words whatever whereas yeah, yeah guys like Warren you're really sociable you sit around the pool and have a, have a chat and yarn and all that so yeah I, I think it's and you realize I think what you realize is everything looks incredibly sexy and and complex from the outside but once you get inside it's everything's just normal people and whether that's sort of uh, yeah professional sport or um or big business or, or whatever it is uh, I think your impression from the outside is very different to the to what it's like on the inside and end of the day it's it's generally just normal people and even if you're you're running into someone in a in a sort of a fan-based environment it maybe looks like they're just brushing you off but when you can see the other side of it they've they've had a long day it's sort of yeah they're happy to scribble a few autographs and move on it's they've, they've got nothing against the 500 people running up trying to take photos of them and, and ask for autographs but it's just uh it's uh yeah you, you can see uh, both sides of it i've got one more physio related question before we we move on to um your journey off to to Oxford. Um, the I've often seen physios sprint out onto the ground at, at cricket games or you know other sporting games with a, a can of magic spray. Um, tell us what is in that can of magic spray, and does it actually work? 
there are a couple of active ingredients in there. Sometimes it was lidocaine or something like that. But yeah, to be honest, there's a, a fair dose of placebo. But if, if you run all the way out there and just say, toughen up, tiger, stand up, you'll be right. Um, <laughs> you're not really justifying your your role. So yeah, a, a quick spray of the magic spray. Um, yeah, it, if nothing else, it makes you feel feel a bit better, like you've done something. And uh, yeah, I think it gives the... Uh, Gives the player who's been rolling around on the ground an excuse to to, to get back up again. But like, cricket's not too bad. Generally, if you get hit, it's um yeah, it hurts. Yeah. But yeah, it, it's when I've worked in sort of football Premier League clubs or football league clubs, that's where it really annoys you, where you've got to run all the way over to the uh, other side of the ground for someone who's just basically just tripped over the shoelaces sometimes. <laughs> so you worked in some some Premier uh, Premier League clubs. Yeah, yeah, I wasn't head physio, but I, I, I was lucky enough while I was over there, I did a bit of work with, um, so after Sri Lanka, I moved over to UK, um, I'd done a little bit of work with some of the younger guys at Arsenal, um, I was at Fulham Football Club where Mohamed Al-Fayed had taken them through into the Premier League, um, and then I was head physio at, at Bristol City, um, which is, was in the Football League, um, so yeah, I, I spent a fair bit of time in, in football, I can call it football, obviously soccer when I'm back here, um, county cricket, rugby, I, I worked through a lot of sports while I was, um, a little bit of basketball while I was in UK, it was, um, yeah, it was, it was a really good time and, um, yeah, just working a season at a time, it, it was one of those great professions where, in other professions, if you change jobs every year, you'd look like you were, a, a, um, yeah, there's something wrong with you, but m- maybe there was, but in, in, in physio, you can get away with just, it's very much a season by season profession, so you can, um, yeah, rotate through a lot of quite cool roles. It sounds like, you know, a, a great ride um, as a, a physio or an assistant physio through you know, a number of clubs in the Premier League. What did you What did you decide to do then? Because you did you take a year off? Um, yeah, well, the great thing about working in in uh, sports physio the season. So depending on what the sport, cricket it's just a summer, it's sort of six months. Uh, football's nine months, but then you can actually take a few months off in between. So I, I love traveling. I think I'm up to. 89 countries so it was a brilliant lifestyle where you could work a season then go backpacking for for three or four months around around europe or south america on the way back to australia so i I did a lot of travel in between so yeah it was a it was a fantastic lifestyle for the first 10 years of my life it was hanging out with professional sports teams and then um yeah doing some backpacking in between and travel and at that point in time you've you've you know done that you're exploring the world what did you think you'd do next? What was what was on your list of things to do? So yeah, being a sports physio was a fantastic lifestyle, but I think you can you can get a long way early in your career as I did, but then you sort of hit that ceiling about it does get a bit Groundhog Days at, at times and, and what's next. But I saw a lot of things in sport that could be done a lot better working in working in the organisations and the clubs and the teams. So I decided I wanted to get into sports business, and I saw that was where the big opportunity was. So. Work in sports physio, you may be able to get an extra few games out of a star player, but at the end of the day, someone's making decisions to buy that star player or, or organising the finance, the investment, the sponsorship to, to to really build that team or that stadium or whatever it may be. So, um, yeah, I, I just really wanted to, to step up to that next level and get get a get a bit more holistically involved in in sports where I thought, saw, as I was saying earlier, it's it seems very sexy and the, the brands are big from the outside, but once you're inside, some of them are just run like mum and dad shops, basically. So uh, I just saw a, a huge opportunity for, for things to be done, done better and I wanted to have a crack at it. So you went to Oxford? Yeah. Yeah, so I, I did the MBA program yeah. in Oxford. I had a, um, a uh, actually had another, a guy who actually had started up a, a sports medicine clinic, uh, Andrew Willett. He was a, a, a former 
Wallaby or Rugby Sevens player, etc. And like many uh, good rugby players, they go to Oxford to do a postgrad degree and, and, and play a bit of Ox, uh, play a bit of rugby. And uh, he, uh, I think he ruptured his Achilles or something. So basically, he, he rocked up to Oxford to to play in the the Varsity match for them and uh, as, as a good ring in, and then injured himself in the first game. And then he realised how how uh, how poor some of the sports medicine was in in UK compared to Australia. So he launched a um, a physio train off the back of his Oxford MBA and I sort of met him through that and just chatting to him I, I just thought that that's what I want to do in Oxford MBA and it's great for it's great for transitioning out of something um, something very technical into something more business orientated and um, yeah it, it makes you a bit of a, a jack of all trades master of none but yeah these days I talk about terms like NPV and um, yeah rate of return and all that I had no idea what that meant as a physio now at least I uh, I'm still not great at calculating it, but at least I, you know I, I, know, I know the jargon yeah. now. So, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, after you did the MBA, you, you headed back home, headed back to Australia? Uh, I had a couple more years oh, in, in UK. I actually did a startup, startup in UK um, in sports insurance. Uh, again, that's something I saw could be done better. There was, there was people insuring some like, IPL and Premier League footballers, for, and they weren't really evaluating the risk very well. It was just almost blanket blanket rates whereas if you look at cricket as an example the the fast bowlers are a lot more likely to get injured than a wicket keeper but they were just sort of charging them the same rate so um, I, I thought there was a, an opportunity to, to technically price insurance and sports um, sports people much better um, but at the end it was it was very much a, a broker relationship driven business with uh, deals done over beers etc rather than through through algorithmic models and this is obviously 12 years ago so things have changed a bit since but um, yeah, I really tried to disrupt that as well as doing a bit bit more um, physio work and consulting work while I was over in London, but um, came back in 2011 uh, to take on a role at, well, firstly to uh, follow my uh, my girlfriend, now wife, back. Um, we stared each other down for a while and I lost. But, um, <laughs> I was going uh, to say, but also, clearly yeah. she's the boss and said, we're headed home yeah. and you just did as you were told. No, I, I held out for 10 months. I thought it was very masculine <laughs> and then tail between my legs, I, I, I went home. Um, but... Uh, the uh, yeah, and then I actually got a role with um, Boston Consulting Group. Then uh, they just opened a Perth office, and I was one of the the first external recruits to come into it. So um, yeah, it was a fantastic couple of years, both in Perth, being being down the beach. Um, although it's a bit of a hard landing from London when it comes to the the the, the vibrancy of the place. But um, yeah, really enjoyed my time there. And yeah, BCG is an amazing finishing school for a for an MBA. So working one of those top tier strategy um, consultancies you just learn so much um, you're you're never even close to the smartest person in the room which is a, a great situation to yeah. be in because that's where you learn yeah. the most yeah i'm going to go back one your sports insurance is it true like ronaldo's legs are insured for some ridiculous amount of money like how does all of that actually work yeah it's fascinating and like Back in the day, it was very back of the fag packet calculations. Uh, there wasn't a lot of science going into it, so that's where we thought there was opportunity. So we we pulled down a lot of uh, injury data. There's John Orchard. There's a lot of Australians who do a lot of um, a lot of research and have ways of coding injuries, etc. And so um, sports data is now a hell of a lot better. But back then, it was it was very rudimentary. Um, and so yeah, we had some very basic models. Um, uh, Based on research and, and data, to say um, a uh, like my example from earlier on, a, a fast bowler is seven uh, percent likely to get injured to lose miss a series of games as opposed to wicketkeeper, which is two percent. Um, the, the the way they did judge it was uh, off age. So the older you got, the the more expensive it got, which 
which does make sense for some some sports and some athletes. But if you look at fast bowlers, there's actually the the younger fast bowlers are actually more likely to get injured just because their the body hasn't matured as much as opposed to the the, the older ones. You're much you're much safer as a 29 year old than a 19 year old. So um, yeah, we, we sort of just gave them a few insights there to try and uh, t- tighten up the modelling. But yeah, at the same time, at that time we had that um, in- incredible. Um, uh, case of yeah, the Ronaldo's being legs being short for a hundred million or whatever ridiculous fee it was, and and to be honest, it's understandable if you've just paid a transfer fee of that much. Is, you have bought an asset and you, you do want to look after it, but but how they were coming up for the premium for that is um yeah again there was a, definitely room for sophistication. Um, hundred million sounds a lot, but these days there are so many transfers for more than hundred million. It's um yeah, it, it's huge numbers. So you you're sitting in. Um, a whole bunch of meeting rooms with some super smart people at BCG. W- what was your and learning a whole you know a whole bunch of stuff? What what we what was your thought process around where you wanted to go to next? Because clearly you've picked up some amazing life experience. You've travelled the globe. You've done a couple of startups. You've gone to Oxford. You've got all of this knowledge. What did you decide to do with it then? I wanted to get back into sport, so um, so I moved to Sydney to, just for those opportunities because there wasn't a lot in in Perth at the time. I'd I'd done a, a governance review with the with the Wacker and a few other bits and pieces, but yeah, I moved to moved to uh, Sydney and, and took a job with Gemba, which is one of the the main sport and entertainment consultancies in in Australia. Um, again, that was fantastic experience because did projects across a, a lot of different sports, did some work with the FFA, um, a lot of work with the Australian Sports Commission, as it was known at the time, um, so in boxing, swimming, etc. sort of worked on a, a new strategy for Swimming Australia in, 20, in 2013 after the 2012 Olympics had been a bit of a, a debacle. So it was great to both build my network and, and get experience and um, yeah, work with people like the founder, Rob Mills of, of Gemba and, and people who have been in the industry a long time. So... It was great also for building up my Australian network because I hadn't actually been in Oz for, for about yeah, over a decade. So it was good to sort of re-immerse myself in the uh, Australian sports, sports landscape. And through that gig, you, um, you jagged a role is it in a GM role at the NRL, is that right? That's right. Yeah, I was consulting in and then, um, yeah, ended up sort of it was ridiculous paying consulting rates the whole time when, um, yeah, I'd been there a long time. So I sort of transitioned into a... A GM role there. Um, I sort of worked in marketing, content, digital originally, and then club and state services, and then eventually commercial. But it was a, a really interesting time to be there. It was that they'd, they'd just done a a big TV deal of over a billion dollars, and uh, had bought in Dave Smith, who's a, a a banker, um, a foreign banker, a Welsh banker, as opposed to a a, a rugby league guy, which was a, a very interesting time. And I, I guess I was. I was managed to thrive to an extent in that environment because I had the management consulting skills, which probably a banker could relate a little bit more to when you're putting a PowerPoint deck in front of them and a few models rather than a um, yeah a, a she'll be right its vibe of it. But then um, yeah, it was that they started what's called a growth and innovation fund, which I think was strategically really really smart. Um, the commission saw that these big TV deals weren't potentially going to last forever, so they want to invest in some diversifying revenue streams so um, I managed to pull a little, quite a bit of money out of that fund with various business cases um, one of the big ones being membership so I, I think we took the the uh, the membership base across the league from 228,000 to 330,000 members um, over three years of running that program and 
it, it then finished. And if you look at it today, the, the membership base is still 330,000. So um, it, it showed it worked. And like again, there were a lot of extrapolations, but we, we felt that brought $10 million a year into the ecosystem through that, things like membership. We had a, a fan relationship management centre. We took a lot of the... the um, the philosophies and and um, approaches from the from North American sport, which is ahead in a lot of ways um, in in sports business, not necessarily in in sports science. But um, yeah, we build out sort of call centres for for sort of clubs to to contact and relate and, and work with work with fans. We had yeah, group sales. Uh, we had a, a lot of digital initiatives, etc. Um, play and rewards to sort of get kids who are playing the playing the game to come along to NRL matches, etc. So. Yeah, it was a fantastic time. I was there for two and a half years um, and doing a lot of the club-facing stuff. So it wasn't just working centrally; it was actually out working directly with the clubs. So it was a yeah, it was a great experience to be uh, working one of the the bigger the big sports codes. And was there any you know any players administrators that you came across that uh, that really stand out to you at that time in terms of you know things that you perhaps learnt be it from a you know, cultural perspective or a high performance perspective um, yeah I think working in sports is, is quite funny you, there's so many people making mistakes a lot of the time I think you learn from every time and there's no shortage of scandals and and um, and things blowing up and every time you see one is what can you learn from it and, and if you were in that situation next time yeah how would you how would you handle it differently and it was it was really interesting where NRL where there was two people with very different approaches there was again Dave Smith who was a, a an ex-banker and then you had Todd who was a very sports relationship sort of a um, football type guy so yeah that, that they approached it very different ways um, which had their strengths and also their weaknesses but I think what I really picked up when I was at NRL was I saw that um, the the decline in participation, the my feeling that the last of the the big TV deals had had been done, um, and the decline of linear linear television, of advertising, of of cable TV, subscription TV, and I saw a, I, I really couldn't see what the answer was, and then um, yeah, as we get on to I. I um I came across esports and everyone has their aha moment when they scratch the surface of it and and my feeling was this is where where traditional sports is going to end up and um yeah four years later I'm uh, in the heart of it and we'll see how it goes. So do you remember the 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 moment that you came across it and thought aha? Yeah, I think everyone has that aha moment with with esports when you first see numbers. I was actually um I was at a dinner with um Xander Laurie who's the the president of GoPro and um uh. Survey Monkey and a few others. Like he was the founder of those, and he he was just in Sydney, and he got ten inverted commas interesting people together for dinner, and somehow I made that list. And um, I was chatting away to um, a few guys. I think it was the head of Dropbox Australia, and um, uh, they were they were on this. Um, we had the dinner, and then we went, a few of us went out for drinks afterwards, and three of them they were all on the uh, advisory board for this uh, startup called Gamers um, Aussie startup, and. Um, as a young kid in in Sydney who's not that young anymore, uh, Riyadh, who who just saw this opportunity. Basically, there's a lot of um, amateur sites out there, websites and and Facebook pages and everything around gaming. And at the time, no one had gotten onto it, and so he just went around and amalgamated all these websites and, and bought them for nothing, like huge reach and all that. And no one was onto it that there was like hundreds of thousands of people using these sites, and it was over millions of monthly active users. And he was just picking him up for a few hundred bucks here, 10 grand here, et cetera. And he managed to um, amalgamate this mass media media network uh, in the gaming space. Um, as with 
gaming and esports that no one's really worked out how to effectively monetize it yet. But he was at that first move advantage. And when I saw the numbers, it just blew me away. I just thought, like, this is a lot bigger than NRL. Like, we're, we're getting three, four million uh, people to a, a state of origin or a grand final, and we're feeling pretty proud of it. But yeah, those numbers are absolutely dwarfed by, by what's happening in, in, in this space. And I, I really thought, saw it as a, a competitive threat to traditional sports back then. And um, yeah, it was, it was probably about a year later that uh, Riot Games, a recruiter at Riot Games, who makes League of Legends the biggest eSport in, in the world at the moment, um, actually tapped me up for a job. And um, I, I did, didn't really know much about them, but then I did my research, started playing the game and um, well, went in for an interview and... Uh, at the time, I'd gone through the same in, in NRL where I thought it's very hard to affect change from a governing body position. I think there was a, a big opportunity to set up a club or a team as a best practice example and get everyone to follow that. Um, so at the, at the time, um, when, when I left NRL, just jumping ahead to that, I, I got sick of telling clubs how to run the business and getting ignored. So I thought it was time to put my money where my mouth was. And uh, I started Guinevere Capital as a, as a sports investment business looking to buy a, a major Australian sports team. I didn't think there was any point being a CEO you need to actually control the board down. You can't have uh, any crusty old people above you. So I um, yeah, started Guinevere Capital, wheeling, dealing on some big traditional sports assets. Um, and then at the time, they, they flew, flew us up to, uh, to, uh, to Queensland for the grand final of the League of Legends. It was a stadium event. Like they only had about 3,000 people there, but it was a sellout. And it, it was an amazing event, the atmosphere. And I thought, there's something here. So um, yeah, we, we, we effectively bought a an esports team as a side project at, at that point but then um yeah the, the further we got into it we just realized there's a lot more tailwinds in esports why while why why fight the tide when you can surf the wave so yeah that's when we decided to or i and a few people with me decided to pivot all in an esports so just just to get an understanding of the structure of these teams that you purchased is it not just four or five mates getting together forming a team and then they're away or what's the actual structure behind that that gives you an option to buy it yeah, and that was where it all started. It was four or five kids who were good at playing a game. They they get a uh, the crowdsource a logo. They'd open a Twitter account, and before you knew it, you're a professional esports team. Um, and if you're good enough, you'd you'd win your way up through the leagues. It was promotion relegation. So um, yeah, um, but I'd seen what was happening everywhere else in the world, and didn't think Australia was going to be a, go on a different tangent. But when we bought in, we were the first external investors to get involved um, with sort of sport and entertainment backgrounds. So so yeah, we spoke to a number of the a number of the the founders who were young 22-year-old kids, basically. Um, and we, we found Nathan Mott and Curtis, um, who were a, um, owned the Diables at the time, and we thought they were sort of the, the management that really, really got it. So, um, yeah, we bought them, and like, it, was a, it was a limited company, etc. Um, there was nothing there, basically. They had a slot in the league. They, they, were, they were a perennial sort of third-place team. They were, they were reasonable performance. Um, had a cool logo, um, had done a bit of stuff, had social media accounts, etc. But yeah, if you tried to value it as, a, as an asset, there really wasn't a lot there. And, and even today, when we're talking sort of tens of millions of dollars on some of our, um, our big franchises, it's still very hard to value. I think um, uh, traditional sports and tech are two of the hardest things to value. Um, and, and esports sort of crosses over both of them. And uh, yeah, I spend a lot of time trying to justify valuations uh, either driving them up or down, and it's a yeah, it's a it's a tough space to see to try and work out what you're actually buying or what you're actually selling. And um, so for for you today, if you think about um, your business and you know, what you're trying to do in the in, in in the esports space, what what is the what's the goal? 
I think it's a fantastic opportunity to actually shape an industry. Um, it, it's evolving so quickly, as we we're just talking about. It's it's gone from kids playing computer games in the bedroom to um, yeah, hundreds of millions of people watching on time online, full stadiums, and we're at Madison Square Garden or the uh, Beijing Olympic Stadium. So um, yeah, it's just a, a fantastic opportunity to help shape the growth of an industry. And yeah, my goal is just to be part of that. Um, and I think there's a lot we can apply from traditional sports into, into esports, uh, both uh, from a commercialization point of view and a performance point of view, which is what's been a part of our part of our philosophy. Um, and I think not only can you take the good, but you, you can help try and help the industry avoid some of the pitfalls that uh, that, that traditional sport has hit over the last hundred years, where it's been while it's been developing. So, um, but yeah, I, I really enjoy the the competitive aspect of it, of building a sports or an esports organisation. Uh, but yeah, there's a business side of it too. As I said early on, it's, um, it's not just yeah, buying players and teach, hoping they play the game well. It's, it's actually trying to work out your P&L, raise investment, uh, get sponsorship, sort of have merchandise programs, try and work out your revenue streams, try and um, yeah, manage a, a group of fairly eccentric uh, staff and, and players. It's a, yeah, it's, a, it's a fantastic challenge. So, so if you zoom out far enough, does it look just like a an EPL, like an English Premier League uh, organisation? Yeah, as I said, whether it's tiddlywinks, computer games, or basketball happening in the middle, it's all the same. Um, it's all the same business around the outside, and uh, I, I think even though it's a bit different at the moment, I think traditional sports is actually going to follow esports rather than vice versa. If you look at the the deals at the moment, you've got the broadcasters, they've got Twitch, which is owned by Amazon. You've got YouTube owned by Facebook, uh, YouTube owned by Google. You've got Facebook with Facebook Live. Uh, Microsoft tried to come in with Mixer and, and had to go home with its tail between the legs. It's um, this is where the big boys are playing at the moment. This is a battleground um, for, for for eyeballs. And and my view is traditional sports is going to follow the the path that that esports cuts. They're, they're already getting sort of mass reach, um, and, and now everyone's just trying to work out that that commercialization model to to turn those eyeballs. Um, in, in, into dollars, but yeah, the the old the old um, the old method of paywalls, etc., it just doesn't wash with the new generation. So you need to be smarter about it than 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 that. But yeah, again, kids and people are prepared to pay, but it's, it's donations. It's because they want to pay. It's sort of upsells. It's over the top services. It's um, it's in game purchases. It's sort of collaborations with fashion brands. It's a uh, it, it is really. Uh, it doesn't have the baggage that traditional sports does. You can uh, be very creative, very innovative. Um, a lot of mistakes are being made along the way, but it's, it's just evolving at such a rapid rate. It's, it's amazing. And if you think about that, that community um, and what, what you are trying to build there, how different is, is that community to, say, the traditional sports community that you know, you've, you've worked in for such a long time? Is there differences or do they, you know, just do different things? There's massive differences, but I think it's a generational thing. I think the average age of a, a AFL fans about 45, NRL fans about 47, and that average age almost gets one year older each year. Whereas um, it's just a younger demographic in, in esports, and they, I'm sure every generation says this this new next generation is um yeah, it just uh, is weird and completely different. But yeah, I think the gaps between this generation come through because. The internet, the, the the digital transition that has, has come through over that time, they they interact in very different ways. They will sit with the headsets on just like we are playing games and, and hang out at night rather than in the milk bar or in the park. Um, this is um, e- esports is sort of like the 
the the professional subset of of gaming and, and gaming is bigger than television it's bigger than movie industry it's, it's bigger than everything at the moment so when it comes to the the entertainment space so um yeah I, it, it's not a fad it's it's a a transition from um yeah just just the way people interact into into these digital communities and i come from traditional sports and uh, it is quite sad in some ways i see a lot of like the, the big sports are going to be fine like even the english premier league football is going to be fine but it's those those lower tier sports are really going to start struggling i feel um but but again it's not an and or it's it's about balance in life and a lot of our a lot of our um professional players are also have been semi-professional um traditional sports players particularly soccer etc so um the stereotype of some overweight loner sitting in the background is just not not the way it is these guys are uh, are elite and um yeah generally quite fit and um yeah very focused and what sort of hours are they putting in like my 10 year old son he's he's trying to put in 12 hours a day on the uh on the on the Wii and uh you know the nintendo what what sort of hours are these guys doing so a lot of what we do is actually pulling back the hours because there's really? it's what's called grinding. They all just try and sit down and play games all day long. And I think by osmosis, they're somehow going to get better. But we put a lot more structure around it. So it, we spend more time actually reviewing games and talking about it than actually playing it. So it's well, they'll do what's called a scrim block. So they'll play three games, effectively practice matches against another professional team. But um, in between each of those, it's actually reviewing it. What, what do we do well? What do we do poorly what are we going to do differently next time and it's actually sort of really compartmentalizing your day so it's it's how much you learn from every game you play not how many games you play and um if you look at sort of the the team uh, we're involved in um in uk excel um yeah they're they've got guys from shulker football club etc we've bought in and and they're very they do everything from sleep hydration nutrition um there, there's a lot and the great thing is like People talk about performance enhancing drugs or whatever as, as trying to give you that few percent extra. Like just getting a good night's sleep the day before the game and not eating Maccas the morning of a, a match or something like that. It's like, it, that's a transition where we've come over over a few years. It's sort of like, even just don't stay up to four in the morning playing World of Warcraft when you've got a, a major final the next day. Like it's sort of, and, and these kids just aren't used to that. But once you actually drop them into a structured environment, there's, there's just, um, yeah, there's huge games to be, gains to be made. Love it. Hey, I'm really curious about you know your you you've had an amazing career like it just appears to to me that you just you've got an amazing uh, I guess self belief that you can make stuff happen ha- has that always been the case like you've had you know a number of different startups you've um, travelled the the globe put your hand up for stuff. Is it just an innate self-belief or where does that come from? Yeah, I, I think it, it is. It's just confidence. As I said, like very early on, like I, again, these days I, I walk into a capital raise meetings asking for tens of millions of dollars, etc. It, it, it is that, that self-belief and confidence. And I think it goes back to one of my earlier points. Everyone thinks that people in certain roles really must know what they're doing. Um, but it's just not true. It's sort of once you get into these environments, you realise that the bar actually isn't that high. And I think one of the one of the, the, the great times was actually yeah, in working in Boston Consulting Group where you got dropped into all these companies. And like I'm, I'm a physio going into a, a major mining company telling them how, where they should be laying out their mines and telling these technical guys that you should be doing X, Y, Z. And it's just yeah, there's a degree of just common sense, pragmatism, and, and yeah, um, yeah. I guess I, I'm a believer. I, I I can work anything out. Um, it just takes 
takes time. But again, get the right people around you. It's sort of if you don't understand something, just ask, and then then you do understand it. It's sort of a yeah, whatever it is, whether it's a physio or sports or, or or finance. It's um yeah, it's having that confidence that you can work anything out, and you can get the right people around you when you when you can't do something. There's someone who can, and just bring them on board. You, you said that you you know you came back to. Um, Australia moved across to Sydney to expand your network. Have you had a you know um, some people that you've been able to lean on for advice along the way? And um, you know, do you remember any of that advice specifically? That's you know giving you more confidence to to do what you do. Uh, it's an interesting one. Yeah, I, my, my major sort of network at the moment when it comes to business and all that is people from from BCG back in the day. Um, right. And yeah. Uh, yeah, I I've got a a, uh, it's quite funny, actually. A lot of the sayings from sport apply equally to business, and I, I, I have them as catch cries. So, like, uh, my favorite one's uh, Wayne Gretzky. I'm probably going to completely misquote quote it, but you miss 100% of the shots you don't take, and, and things like that. It's just like, yeah, if you, yeah, if you, if you're, if you're uh, successful at everything you do, you're not pushing yourself harder, hard enough. Is sort of the, the the thing. Is actually, and even with esports, it's the same. It's it's about continual improvement. It's actually stretching yourself. It's called limit testing in um in esports. It's yeah, just just push yourself until you you mess it up and then you learn something. If you if you're doing it, if you're getting everything right, then you're you're not really um you're not really evolving. And so yeah, it's about continually evolving, continually learning, and yeah, just those B hags. In fact, my um one of my early consulting companies was B hag consulting. It, it, just because I couldn't think of a name, I, I never traded under that. It was just a uh, effectively a shell company, but but big hairy audacious goals that came out of Oxford. And yeah, you, you just need that vision of having those big goals. And I, I think a lot of it comes back to I I, I love just chatting, sitting around chatting. And it, it is the barbecue test of if someone asks what you do at a barbecue, you just want something cool to say. And uh, I love being physio, hanging out with sports teams. I uh, yeah, I love I love working in esports. It's uh, I, I get invited on podcasts just to talk about it. If I was um, yeah, if I was doing something as a a little more bland, uh, I may not be here uh, chatting to people as illustrious as yourself. So I think it's it's all about following your passion. I've I met a few people that yeah, I thought, gee, that's really cool. I'd love to do that. Be going to Oxford or um or getting involved in esports. It's sort of yeah, it's if you see something that looks cool and don't complain about. It. If you're not happy with what you're doing, don't complain about it. Go and do something that you are, you're going to enjoy. It sounds like you got frustrated in quite a few of the roles ultimately, which led to the formation of this business. Do you now feel like you're in the right position where being inside the NRL, for example, was frustrating because you couldn't tell the teams what to do and a few other situations like that you found yourself in England? Do you feel comfortable now that you've hit that part right? Um, yeah, it's interesting and yeah. You're you're right. I do get frustrated easily in roles, and and maybe it's character flaw. I just last one or two years before I get bored and, and move on to something else. But uh, at, at the same time, I feel like um, yeah, esports is just evolving so quickly and it's so innovative. Um, yeah, that there aren't any any hurdles or any any barriers at the moment. So I feel like esports is just evolving so quickly. You can really make a difference, and end of the day, that's what I want to be able to do: just make a difference. I guess. And so, um, probably flipping a little bit back to the, even the barbecue question, in traditional sports, athletics pursuits, um, there's obviously you want kids to see the heroes and try and emulate parts of that, you know, be fit and active, be outside, there's a big push for that. Esports must have a negative connotation, especially for, for parents with young kids. 
how do you address that with people you talk to and then the people who come onto your teams? Yeah, it's um, it's quite funny. We the, the big derogatory term amongst uh, this age group and these gamers is, is is boomers. It's sort of like okay, boomer, which means you're an old fuddy duddy, basically. So, <laughs> um, yeah. Uh, but yeah, we, we um. Do they call you a boomer? Oh, yeah, I, I try and keep myself young, hanging around with the cool kids. I, I think that's one of my strengths as well. Like everyone grows old, but you can be immature forever. I I, I don't actually feel out of place, <laughs> but hanging around with the twenty year olds, maybe they. Maybe they look at me funny, but yeah, I, I, I enjoy just uh, yeah, rolling with the youngsters. It's quite funny, like this League of Legends of people in their early 20s and, um, or, or late teens, and I can sort of have a beer and, and chat away with them. But you've got this new generation coming through Fortnite where they're still 16-year-olds, and yeah, I, I just can't relate there. It got to the point where they are genuine punk kids, and yeah, <laughs> it's, um, it, it is harder to relate to. But back, back to the original question, uh, at a professional level, we're all about balance, um, and, and so you know, they, they do gym sessions, and we sort of break up the games, the day, so they don't they don't um, just sit down playing games all day. But like, if you look at the parents, just say, "I can't believe you're sitting down at a computer all day." That, that's that's the majority of jobs out there in the workforce. Most of you are actually sitting down at a computer eight hours a day, uh, tapping away and, and pretending you're doing something constructive, like an Excel spreadsheet or a uh, a PowerPoint presentation. But yeah, if, if you look at it. The jobs are fairly sedentary in general um, and it's all about breaking that up and not sitting there eight hours a day and trying to break it up with the gym session at lunchtime or, or whatever it may be and um, have, have it play a game or, or do a bit of work and then go for a run or whatever it is. So, um, and I think people, particularly the, in our squad, actually now realise that um, mental mental health and to re- reset mentally is important and there's a link between physical activity. If you if you sit down in front of a computer all day, you're not going to improve. You're going to actually sort of just, um, yeah, just just get stuck in the rut. So you have bursts of productivity, whether that's playing and learning from a game and then um, then just walk away from it, have a break, get some fresh air um, and then come back to it. And, and a lot of this COVID um, time, I've, I've been focusing on it myself. I've been using this last six months to re- really work on me and actually understand how how I achieve the most and particularly once you get out of an office environment, even though I owned the company, I'd, I'd sit, walk in there at a certain time, I'd sit there for most of the day and then I'd walk out. Whereas working from home, I'll, I'll work for two hours. If, if, I've, if I'm not getting anything done or a sort of, um, yeah, have, have lost inspiration, like why the hell am I sitting here just trying to stare at an email inbox? So I'll yeah, go outside, lie in the sun and read the paper, go for a run, whatever it may be. Um, but it's, Again, back to my earlier theme, it's about outcomes, not process. It's, there's a certain things I want to achieve, so do what you need to do to achieve that. And and maybe I can do that lying on a beach, uh, just tapping away a, a few emails on my mobile phone once I've I've worked out what the uh, what the answer is. Um, so yeah, I, I think it's it, it's important no matter what you're doing to actually focus on what you're trying to achieve. And um, yeah, sitting in one spot for for ten hours straight is invariably not going to not going to solve it. You can't really stay inspired and focused for that long. Love it. Hey, I've got one more. The, the, the marquee players in esports, the, the guys that are the elite of the elite, what sets them apart? It's really quite interesting. We've got an academic industry collaboration with University of Technology Sydney and their sports science faculty, and we've got guys doing their PhDs on this. Um, and, and that's the question. Is, is it nature? Is it something we can recruit for? Is it nurture? Is it something we can train? And um, there's a baseline level of skill that's the same as traditional sports or esports, you need to be able to kick a ball straight or tap buttons in a certain order at a certain rate. But what really differentiates the good from the great players is working memory. So 
the great football players or basketball players, they can shut their eyes at any time and tell you where every player on that court or that field is, not only where they are, where they're going to plan those two, three steps ahead. And the great esports players are the same. And there's an extra degree of, um, uh, I guess, computing power there because a lot of the time you don't know where the opposition is. There's a bit of fog of war within the game. So, um, yeah, it's be able to have that, that big picture thinking and actually be able to plan those two, three steps ahead. It's sort of... It's a combination between chess and um, and obviously the mechanics of being having the reflexes. So I, I feel I can I can talk strategy with the best coaches in the world, but yeah, my old man hands can't tap tap the buttons properly. So yeah, there, there is a baseline level of skill, but um, yeah, it, it is actually cognitive um, working memory that 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 does differentiate at the elite level. Well, when you talk about big picture and being uh, two or three steps ahead. Um, that sounds like you. Hey, Dave, thank you so much for uh, joining us on the Do Landers. It's been absolutely um, fascinating to talk to you about you know, your journey and, and what you do. And, mate, we cannot, cannot wait to see what uh, you do next with eSports. Great. Thanks for having me. It's been, a, it's been a great chat. Thanks, Harry. No worries. Absolute pleasure. That was Dave Harris. How good is Dave Harris? The thing that struck me about Dave was his self-belief and his confidence. You know, he made that comment around uh, there's this this, perception that people in all of the big gigs or the big roles, you know, around the globe or around the country who are sitting in boardrooms, uh, you know, know exactly what they're doing. And the fact is that that's not the case. Um, and he's just had the confidence to walk into these places saying, you know, I don't know everything, but I've got a really good handle on what I can make happen here. Yeah. Love that confidence. What's your takeaway? Look, I think there was a – obviously the way in which he's arrived at uh, eSports yeah. in particular, and he didn't actually set out to do that obviously – is quite amazing. He chased certain things that made him feel good about the sort of jobs that he was doing. Yeah, you know, like the, the barbecue talk, test. He <laughs> talked about the barbecue test that yeah. he wanted to be able to tell whoever he's talking to that this is what I do and for him to feel cool about that. Yeah. And I think that's that's kind of good because you've got to be happy and passionate about what you're doing and have an interesting, you know, in, for him it was important to have an interesting job uh, to talk about, you know, interests um but i was actually really interested and i'm still kind of blown away by the size of esports and dave kind of kind of stumbled into it kind of didn't stumble into it he didn't set out to do that with his first gig um but having a look at a few stats here is the projection is that by 2021 next year there'll be 84 million viewers of esports which is higher than major league uh baseball which has 79, and they're expecting 63 million for NBA. Still second to the NFL. These are obviously all American-based yeah. audience stats, but that just shows how big it is, and it's kind of this underground subculture for the older generation, just thinking you know, thinking about when I used to play games uh, as a kid and you'd be sitting there watching your brother play and just going, oh, this is so boring, I just want to have a go. Now kids will jump onto YouTube and watch people play games. And I always scratch my head going, why don't they just want to play it? They just want to watch other people do it. And the realisation that 
that's exactly the same as people watching elite sport, be it yeah. any sort of elite sport, and going out and playing that same sport on the weekend. No you watch, different. You want to watch the best do it. Yeah. And you're doing it not only because you might take a little bit of that back to when you play it, but also because you love watching other people do that same thing. And esports is really no different. And isn't that it, it, like hasn't the penny just dropped? Yeah, like the pennies it, through this discussion. The pennies like I'm I'm watching Miller morning, noon, and night. Want to get on the iPad and watch people play Minecraft or uh, whatever it might be. Going, what the hell? But I'm the same about footy. Yeah, exactly. It's entertainment. That's what it is, and there's no real difference. And the other other startling thing about um, the way in which Dave manages his esports team is the balance yeah they bring because you just imagine you know this is me starting to be a bit of a boomer even though i'm nowhere near being a boomer that they must just sit in front of a a console or a tv for for 14 hours a day just play 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 um you have this image inside your head of bean bags and big coke coke (laughs) exactly coke on tap coke on tap yet they're actually working out of the high performance center in uh in sydney it's weight sessions um, or gym sessions. It's go for a run, break up the day. Um, and then you look at the average worker out there who would sit in front of a computer, probably worse now during coronavirus, sitting at your desk sedentary yeah. for the vast majority of the day. So that was a real eye-opener in that regard. Oh, me too. And I, and I reckon given the scale at which esports is now expanding, Dave is an early, early, even though it's such a big industry already he's early on this wave that is just going to sweep through mate he's got everything. a he's got a big set of waves coming up behind him yeah he's, he's certainly going to ride that thing in hey oh, i reckon there's a constant theme that we're hearing again and again and again through uh all of the people that we talk to that you know, high performance doing whatever that doing might be there's got to be a balance. There's got to be a balance between the time and effort and work that you put in um, to what you're actually doing. But just as important is the time and effort and doing that you put into yourself yep. that allows you to actually have the wherewithal, have the clarity of mind, have the physical ability to actually keep on doing. Yeah, and Dave talks about that. Obviously, you know, just staring at an inbox eight, nine hours a day is not going to get you your best performance breaking it up with some physical activity or whatever it is that you might uh, might do to distract you is actually better to have those bursts of high, high productivity. And I reckon COVID, this whole lockdown situation, is going to change the way that we work forever. Like I reckon we'll balance whether we when and when, when and whether we go into the office and when we work from home and then when we're working from home, how much time is actually in front of a screen and how much time is about quality time investing back in you and whether that is some wellness activity or some physical activity or whatever it might be. Yeah. Oh, look, I'm, I'm intrigued to see how that sort of goes. But uh, in the meantime, I think I might download League of Legends and... Um, get practising. Yeah, get practising. Might join the Dire Wolves. You should, in, uh, you should join the Dire Wolves. I, well, don't, that, I don't think they'd have me. Well, they, no, they wouldn't. Like my, my thumbs just aren't quick enough. Like my ability to tap 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 away on the on the on the joy- <laughs> okay boomer. <laughs> yeah. I was ju- I was just about to say on the joystick. Did uh, do they have a joystick these days? I, I don't think they use joysticks, mate. I think you're now thinking of the 60s and 70s. Yeah, okay, maybe I am. With your little Atari. 
Anyway, that was uh, episode 14 of The Do-Landers. That was Dave Harris. Uh, what did he say? It's about outcomes, not process. Jeez, he's, he's created some outcomes over the journey. Sure has. Nick, love your work. See you, Black. See you, Nick. See you, Do-Landers. Hey, Do-Landers, if you want to hear more inspiring stories and have this show grow to more and more listeners, do us a favour. Can you like, share, rate and review the Do-Lander podcast on wherever you get get your podcast from? Wherever good pods are cast. That's where... (laughs) 